Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Friday Reporter Podcast. It's a podcast where me, Lisa, the host, interviews journalists and the journalism adjacent about their work. The Friday Reporter Podcast is in partnership with PR Daily. And if you don't know about PR Daily, it is a tremendous uh, resource for communicators like myself and you and and the folks you work with. Uh, PR Daily actually just launched what's called the PR Daily Leadership Network. It's a peer-to-peer brainstorming and networking opportunity for mid-level communicators, uh, access to uh, measurement of SEO, uh, business fluency, presentation training, lots of other opportunities there at prdaily.com. If you're interested in the PR Daily Leadership Network, be sure to mention that you heard about it on the Friday Reporter Podcast to receive $500 off of your membership. Well, hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. This is uh, episode two for YouTube, but episode 82 or 83 of the podcast. And I'm lucky enough today to be joined by Josh Gerstein, who is uh, the senior legal affairs reporter for Politico. Josh, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, Lisa, my pleasure to be here. So Josh, um, I've told this story a couple times now on the podcast, but my favorite part about Washington is that, you know, we, we work uh, in this community, but we also are raising our kids and our family and doing life in this space. So I often make the joke about how there were times, you know, when the kids were early in an elementary school, maybe we could have called it a business meeting because we were all at the, you know, at George Mason University for a presentation or whatever it was. So we've been lucky enough to not only work uh, professionally, but also uh, know each other personally because our kids have been in school together here in the in the D.C. area. Yeah, I think you were my daughter's soccer coach maybe oh, for a while. Yes, yes, I was. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness that was an unpaid position. <laughs> uh, but Josh, tell me, um, you know, so we've, like I said, we've been knowing each, each other for some time, but I'm hopeful that you can talk to me a little bit about how you got into journalism. Sure. Uh, happy, happy to do that. Um, well, how I got into journalism, I guess I was always interested in it really from the time I was in high school. Uh, and, uh, why exactly, I don't know, but, but it just had always been fascinated by journalism, both by, um, print journalism, but I would say at the beginning, my interests were more in the area of TV. Um, maybe it was just being a teenager in the eighties, but it seemed like (laughs) a more, um, omnipresent and urgent, uh, medium to me than, than some of the other media that existed at the time and and obviously some other new ones that didn't exist then that we all deal with on a daily basis now. So pretty much since high school, I've been interested in it. I started by writing for a local paper. I did a couple internships while I was still in high school at our very um, esteemed uh, NPR affiliate in the Boston area, WBUR. Okay. Um, And then ended up doing some like local TV internships when I was in college Ended up at ABC doing an internship when I was in college and then um, eventually started working at CNN right after I got out of college. And, um, you know, like I said, initially, my interests were in television, um, I think probably shows like 60 Minutes and 2020 that was a lot more investigative at the time Mm -hmm. um, were were intriguing to me. Uh, Shows like Dateline that have now become like very tabloidy at one time where I think doing a lot more substantive stuff and investigative um, journalism. And so that was my interest at that at that time. And so I ended up working for CNN and then later for ABC um, 
for a number of years as a, as a producer, researcher, mm-hmm. eventually ended up, um, my first big foray into politics was covering Bob Dole's campaign in 1996 um, for what was then, what we now call that an embed, but they didn't have that word back then. So right. I was just a producer, but I, I did the entire um, sorry, that's my dog barking in the background. It's okay. the entire, that's the whole nature um, of the podcast is that it's all at home. And here we are. It's, it's very authentic. authentic. <laughs> so, um, so the uh, Dole campaign, I spent, I covered it really from start to finish mm-hmm. from 1995 into 1996, which when you do that for a TV network, it really means um, spending uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I wouldn't say it was 365, but it was, it was lot, in though. the three, it was in the three somethings, Lisa, it was definitely <laughs> above 340. And that wasn't and, the 24 you know, hour news cycle. Like you, yeah, but you were was living. Really no, um, I took virtually no time off that whole year. My thought was basically, um, you know, you've already given your life up. Why should you quibble over the details? So <laughs> I took off a few mental health days every so often, and maybe right. I took a week somewhere in the middle, but basically I wanted to be able to say, like, when someone called from ABC, like, has Bob Dole ever talked about this during the campaign? Yes or no. And if you're not there all the time, it's a little hard to say that. So that was my big political foray. After that, I was totally sick of politics in Washington. <laughs> and so my bosses told me, why don't you go cover the White House? And so... Oh, because that's not be political at, at all. <laughs> I thought it would be rude at age 26, approximately, to say no to them over something like that. So... Um, I went to cover the White House for ABC as a producer and then as a reporter, and I ended up doing that for about five or six years, uh, mm-hmm. after which I wanted desperately to get out of there again. But they were eventful years. Those would be the Clinton years of the Clinton impeachment uh, right. and uh, Lewinsky and all this Ken Starr stuff. Um, and I would say during that time, I developed an interest, especially in legal issues, more than I had before. Um The independent councils were ubiquitous in that era. There were, I don't have stats in front of me, but I think there were about 15 of them at different times during that administration or just before or after. But you don't have a law degree. Is that right? I don't don't have a law degree, but pretty much since the mid 90s, I've been really interested in those issues and I've covered those issues. And so that was sort of, I started covering those even though I was still a White House reporter and I ended up doing a few other things. I did a stint in China and came back Mm -hmm. um, and ended up turning to print and working for the New York Sun and then eventually coming to Politico a week before Obama was inaugurated in 2009. And sort of over time, I've become more and more interested in covering legal issues, legal legal affairs, the courts, uh, the Justice Department. And so that's while I was officially a White House reporter when I started at Politico, over time, de facto, my um, coverage has been pretty much focused on on legal, sometimes national security uh, stuff. And I've been sort of Politico's main reporter covering legal interests of political significance, legal issues of political significance, um, probably for the last decade or so. Yeah. Well, who needs law school when you can have that kind of master's degree? I mean, you're steeped in it, right? I mean, that's how you really get to know it and get to report it and cover it. I mean, you've got that firsthand experience. Yeah. And, you know, look, uh, I've thought about going to law school a number of times, but really most of the lawyers I know, they get to work on one interesting case at a time or maybe two or three. uh, And, you know, I get to cover a hundred. So it's much 
more interesting buffet to, to eat from than if you have to deal <laughs> with one case. And I do get to spend a fair amount of time. Well, I do a lot of reading of paper, but when okay. I'm not reading paper, I do like to cover trials when we actually have trials, which doesn't happen that much anymore. Um, and, and certainly in court and, um, you know, maybe we'll discuss something about January 6th, but there's just like a massive wave of uh, cases related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol yeah. um, that the legal system is digesting uh, digesting right now. It's really something that, again, from the legal perspective, not talking about historical or moral, just the legal perspective, there's never been anything like that in the federal court system in Washington uh, ever. So um, right. it, they've never had to grapple with this volume of um, criminal cases all stemming from one event and all basically being brought at roughly the same time. Right. And so that that there's so much that's happening. I, we joked before we got on camera and started chatting about how busy this year has been for you and for your beat, but there has been a nonstop stream of, of activity and, and January 6th being one of them. There's so many levels of, of activity that's happening at that time. Are you also paying attention to what the Hill is doing there? Or are you strictly on the legal side of, of what's happening? So um, I try to defer most of the coverage of, say, the House uh, January 6th committee stuff mm -hmm. to my colleagues. Like I watch the hearings and stuff, but I'm not the primary. I'm not one of the primary people who's um, tasked with writing about that stuff for Politico. I understand. That said, there has been a pretty significant issue about um how much cooperation there is or isn't between the Justice Department and those committees. And so uh, there's been fairly regular, I don't want to say clashes, but I guess tensions is the right word that have erupted on several occasions because you've got two entities here that have different goals and different actors in them. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I, I get the sense the Justice Department would just as soon Congress not press on these things. And Congress sometimes seems like they don't care what the impact will be on the criminal cases, but that's not exclusively the case. And it's certainly true that um, there are things I think that Congress has managed to come up with, or at least the House has managed to come up with, that are of keen interest uh, to the Justice Department. The thing is, we don't have, a, I think, as good a view of the cards that the Justice Department is holding. Congress tends to hold its cards pretty far away from the vest. It doesn't take long. <laughs> When good they way. discover something, that's a good um, way to for put it, it to get out into the media. Um, <laughs> right. You know, uh, people listening to this, some of them may have spent time on Capitol Hill, but you know, reporters are everywhere and uh, members are everywhere, and they're just not restrained in the way that um, executive branch officials are. Certainly, when I compare right. covering Congress to covering the White House, it's just a completely apples <laughs> and oranges experience when you cover the white house you're confined in a little box basically that used to be the white house swimming pool <laughs> right. and you know you can go outside uh to get a breath of fresh air but aside from um the official authorized events that you're escorted to and from that's it you can't even get a sandwich there you have to go outside the the wire basically in order right. to get a sandwich whereas on the capitol um reporters roam the halls freely and can pretty much go anywhere they want and there's um you know, no shortage of people who are willing to talk to you, um, not just lawmakers, but the, you know, the staff, there's generally not a lot of consequence for congressional staff to speak to reporters. It's actually encouraged, right. whereas I wouldn't say that's generally the attitude at the White House in, under any administration. No, no. And 
and I want to get to the um, sort of the third pillar of government because that the Supreme Court really has been uh, very much active this year. And and you are, we I had a guest a couple of weeks back who called, uh, who basically gave you credit for having the scoop of the decade. I might argue that maybe it was longer than that, but getting access to those early documents about decisions that were happening for the Supreme Court, specifically on Roe v. Wade, that that alone, like talk to me, Talk to me a little bit about that, but I'm curious also about the Supreme Court because covering the White House is one thing, covering Congress is quite another, and then there's covering the Supreme Court. So talk to me a little bit about how it's been for you, um, having gotten access to that early information, verifying that it was in fact real, and then sort of moving from there. Well, it's been a wild a wild few months. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, our story came out at the beginning of May uh, about the um, abortion decision that the Supreme Court was on the verge of uh, rendering, which ended up coming out at the end of June and did, in fact, as we had in the draft decision that we published and then in the article that r- ran along with it, basically predicting that the court was on the verge of striking down Roe versus Wade and was intent on doing that in case some, it, it, unless something else happened. Um, and indeed, that's what ended up uh, happening at the end of June. And it's a pretty momentous um, event. It was um, it was a story. I should say that I co-reported along with another one of my colleagues, Alex Ward, and it was extraordinary for us to be involved in. But it was also just sort of an unprecedented event, as you alluded to, Lisa. I mean, there are very few leaks from the Supreme Court. Um, you know, there are some, but it's very, very unusual. You know, right. um, as we just discussed, Congress leaks like a sieve, and then the executive branch. You know, maybe doesn't quite leak as much, but there are some. And then there's a lot of what I would call authorized leaks from the executive branch where people are instructed to put things out on an informal basis, not for attribution or whatever, that the education department's about to do this or the president's about to sign this executive order or this draft is, I would say, much of the time that stuff is actually released by a spokesperson or an official as opposed to somebody on the QT handing it to someone. Yeah, it's a little more that's strategic. Not, <laughs> right. That's not the way the Supreme Court, I, I don't want to say ever works, but it's it's almost never something you see at the Supreme Court. Um, there have been a few leaks in historically and even more recently about behind the scenes deliberations and cases uh, and you know how the justices are treating each other you know, socially, whether they're getting along or not getting along, Mm -hmm. whether they're mad about something or not mad about something. But what happened with us was that we managed to get a copy of a draft opinion that uh, Justice Alito had written in this case that's called Dobbs versus Mississippi. That was the one they used to strike down Roe versus Wade. And, um, you know, at the time, uh, the arguments had happened in that case. I remember listening to those uh, arguments, and it did sound like the court was considering upholding this Mississippi law, but it really wasn't necessary for them to strike down Roe versus Wade in order to do that. And so it was a little startling to see those words um, on the page when we first saw them. Um, We went through a rather elaborate effort to try to verify the accuracy of that opinion because... um, in part because this has happened so rarely that's such an extraordinary event you wouldn't want to be taken advantage of by someone there are a lot of tricksters and people out there looking to embarrass the mainstream media and Mm -hmm. so forth so that was something that was uh foremost in our minds and our concerns uh but we went through a process of talking to people 
uh, looking at other draft opinions, um, you know, looking at some of the language that was put in, looking at some of the language that was left out, uh, speaking to people um, who would have knowledge about these sorts of things directly or indirectly. Mm -hmm. And eventually we got to a place where uh, we were convinced that it was authentic and uh, we basically went ahead and published it. And it obviously caused uh, quite a stir, but people who look at the opinion that came out at the end of June um, will see that almost word for word, everything that we published was in Justice Alito's majority opinion. It turned out to be a 5-4 decision on that point with uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, sort of taking a middle ground uh, position, but there being five justices to overturn Roe versus Wade. So we did get the story right. I would say one thing that did surprise me during that was um, I didn't think the court would ever acknowledge that something that leaked out of the court was accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the past, you ask almost pedestrian questions of their public information office, like, you know, um, you know, why are they shining the marble steps today? And, and you get a no comment. So <laughs> I just didn't think um, there was any chance that would happen. And I was quite shocked literally 24 hours after we reported it to have the chief justice issue a statement saying that the document was authentic because Mm -hmm. um, usually they try to maintain ambiguity. And especially at the Supreme court, I feel like they often act like they don't want to get down in the mud with those political types, be they reporters or lawmakers and the kind of arm wrestling that goes on in Washington there above that. So it was very interesting to me that he decided to acknowledge it. Uh, Obviously, it also took some pressure off of us because we didn't any longer have to prove that what we have was right. Yeah. Well, thank you for the warning, because I feel like a lot of people I talked to were really, um, I don't, it was was the kind of thing where we read and we got a chance to digest it and were less surprised when the ruling came to be what it was that you had reported was likely to be. a lot of folks were were grateful for a bit of a heads up in advance, but you're absolutely right. This is this is really new. This, the court is operating quite a bit differently than it ever has before. Like in the fact that they, um, the chief justice, had made the announcement the following day. The fact that the chief justice then said that there would be an investigation into how it had gotten into the hands of the media, right? And that's that's something new that I don't think I ever remember hearing before myself either. Yeah, I mean, you know, there have been other leaks because I one of the things I had to research while we were trying to confirm this and package it was what like this has happened before. And mm-hmm. there have been episodes where reporters got decisions in advance of them coming out. Oh, really? Um, but most of these were several decades ago. They were yeah. kind of minor decisions to the point where you're like, well, I don't even know if I had that kind of a decision, whether I would report it because you'd think it would be more valuable to wait and see if you could get something better down the road. Sure. Um, so it was that kind of leaks. You know, there was one episode, I think it was actually with Roe v. Wade itself, where uh, uh, some Time Magazine had a story about it on the newsstands the morning the decision came out. Mm-hmm. But it's stuff, it's stuff that's hard to explain to your kids, right? Because they're like, well, what do you mean on the newsstand? And you're like, well, you see, Time Magazine used to actually come out, you know, this way. <laughs> and and they're saying it right. without a few hours, there was some, they had expected the decision to be released the day before, and it got held for some printing problem. And somebody had given the magazine, a uh, clerk had given the magazine a preview, but it was, you know, really only intended to help them 
at deadline, you know, publish on it and something got screwed up. So things like that have happened in the past. Um, decisions maybe that were a couple days away from being released. There sure. was thought that a printer was sharing some of them with a uh, ABC reporter back in the early, uh, the late 80s or mid 80s. Um, and, you know, he there was some access. And then, like I said, sometimes some of the behind the scenes deliberations, you might remember that after the uh, first big Obamacare decision came out, it was reported that, you know, John Roberts had initially voted to basically overturn one of the key pillars of Obamacare, the individual mandate. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of reversed himself and came up with this unusual rationale to uphold it. Um, So those kinds of leaks have happened. And then justices keep papers, retired justices leave. So it's not a hermetically sealed institution, Mm -hmm. but to get a draft opinion well in advance of its publication when it was still possible that justices might switch positions um, to our research had never uh, had never uh, occurred before for at least for it to be publicly released in its entirety the way we posted it online. How did you feel? So when you reported that story, did you think that maybe they might have adjusted their position? Did it, did you, or were you pretty, and and not saying that the story, the story is rock solid. I'm asking if maybe the public pressure, because so many people got fired up and there were protests and there were like really a lot of demonstrations that were happening. I wondered if maybe the Supreme Court would then say, ooh, maybe this is the wrong direction. Right. I mean, uh, you know, that that was obviously one of the scenarios we thought about when we were publishing it. And after we published it, um, we were also concerned that we'd not be seen as advocating for that to happen. So Mm -hmm. we tried to make clear that that's not what we were doing. We simply came into this information and did our absolute level best to verify it and to put it in context and then to put it out for the public to consume it however they see fit. Um, you know, that could be an impact. I would say that um, when we saw the final decision, if anything, it seems like um, it didn't work that way. That mm. that what it may have done is justices may have been more inclined not to change their position since oh. it had been laid out publicly, mm-hmm. because had they done so, you know, you might have been able to discern how that went down in a much clearer way. It might have looked like, like you're saying, remember, the court doesn't think that it does respond to public pressure. So if they did something that looked like that, um, that that might be of some concern. Um, that said, I don't think, you know, these are very smart people. I think they're not, and, and they have uh, very strong views on certain subjects, especially sure. legal subjects. Mm-hmm. So they're not easily, I think, moved off the position they've taken, especially, uh, you know, this is not an obscure provision of tax law or or the immigration right. code, right? right? This is an issue, abortion and Roe versus Wade, that has been um, a really red hot issue in American politics for half a century. Mm-hmm. And when every one of these justices was nominated and confirmed to the court, people knew that abortion was an issue that was going to be hot in front of the court. So none of them can say they didn't think about it. And I think almost all of them had staked out a view. And so when you look, though, I mean, more from a tactical point of view that like, I think Alito may have made a decision. I'm not changing a single word of this because um, somebody decided to put this out there. Uh, Mm -hmm. He added a chunk responding to the way the dissenters, but the portion that we published was aside from maybe a couple typos, almost completely um, identical. And so 
I don't think they were likely to change votes, but they might have changed or revised their wording. Um, and and that really didn't uh, really didn't happen. So, you know, people can judge for themselves what impact they think it had or what motivations people may have had around it. Obviously, it did generate a lot of public debate. It generated protest as people here in the Washington area know because of the way the court was then surrounded with fencing and and we had several protests and other incidents at justices homes uh mm. although you again you could say that likely would have happened when the decision came out right in maybe any not in may maybe it would have happened in june right. instead yeah yeah um what so looking around the corner the court is now quiet for a little while right they won't be back until when does that how does their cycle work well, officially, like come into the courtroom, it's the first Monday in October. Okay. So, um, so they usually start the first Monday in October. They come back to work, I think, in September. The clerks have now turned over in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Justices, I think, come back you know, usually after Labor Day. And by the end of September or the first day of October, they've usually had a conference to go through everything that piled up over the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we just see paper that comes out of that. And one other thing I should mention is, um, I have, at least me, I haven't seen the court now for about two and a half years because oh, it's basically right. been closed to the public since mm-hmm. the pandemic. So mm-hmm. March, mid-March 2020 um, for the arguments last. So the, the first year after that, they basically did everything um, online and you could just listen to it. They did let the reporters back in at a certain point, but only certain a certain list of reporters that that have sort of official Supreme Court credentials were allowed in, which I don't have. Uh-huh. And there was nobody in the public gallery. I think those are arguing cases were allowed to bring like one colleague with them instead of the usual team that they bring with them. So the court itself has actually been physically closed to the public now for about 29 months or so. Oh, wow. And they may, the calendar shows it opening on September 1st, but I could show you show you 10 or 20 other dates over the last year that it indicated it was going to open and it, then they just never did. Interesting. Any surprises, anything you're anticipating that might come up in the fall? Well, I mean, we've got a new justice that's like coming on the bench. Justice Breyer has left. Um, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson has come on. Mm-hmm. Um, she's obviously the first African-American uh, woman justice. So that's mm-hmm. going to change the tenor and the dynamic of some of the arguments up there. Um, the big thing people are looking at for the fall is um, on Halloween, they're scheduled to have, uh, it just happens to be Halloween, I'm not making an editorial <laughs> statement, right. uh, they're happy to have arguments on um, affirmative action mm-hmm. in college admissions, both one case involving Harvard, so what private schools are allowed to do, and another one involving University of North Carolina, what public schools have allow- uh, are allowed to do, and that's something that I've sort of covered and reported on for for several decades now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. A lot of people think um, that many of the affirmative action programs are going to reach the end of the line. They've been hanging by a very thin thread in the court up till now. And if uh, use whatever metaphor you want, they've managed to dodge the bullet for various reasons of being short justices and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Anthony Kennedy was sort of the last Republican uh, appointee who um, at least said that he could see situations where that might be affirmative action might be a valuable thing to do. And so he's gone now and we've got a six, three conservative court. So most people think 
Um, those programs are likely to be certainly on the public school side, public university side struck down. And we'll see if they go as far as as basically um, preventing that kind of uh, affirmative action program at, a, at private universities as well. I think that's probably the biggest case that we're um, oh, expecting. There, yeah. There's some other things on on gay rights and um, um, what the conservatives call conscience rights of uh, I think we have a case involving a, a web designer who um, it's one of several gay marriage related cases that have come up in the last few years. We had the cake baker people right. might have heard about yep. and mm -hmm. the court has ruled on that. And the latest version of this is a, a web designer in Colorado who doesn't want to do these things in the state of Colorado is telling her, I think it's a woman mm -hmm. um, that you know she's obligated under their anti-discrimination laws to do that. So those are a couple of the big decisions. But I have to say, Lisa, the main thing we'll be looking for, I think, is like, are the justices actually getting along in sort of a cordial and business-like way? Because mm -hmm. some of the indications around the after our story based on the leaked opinion and public remarks by Justice Clarence Thomas, who's the longest serving justice on the court, were pretty grumpy. He said that the court was better 20 years ago than it is today um and and that the people that are around it now he really doesn't care for and he didn't name names it seemed like he was dumping on chief justice roberts so it's that kind of thing um is that acrimony going to be detectable going forward or mm -hmm. was it just a, a weird um in extremist kind of thing that came out because of the tension around this abortion decision and they'll now get back to a more uh business-like uh, way of doing things. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's something that's also caused by the fact that we have a 6-3 court with three Donald Trump appointees on it mm -hmm. um, and that that fact alone is going to lead to more acrimony because it's going to be really hard for the liberals to put together a coalition to block much of anything. So maybe that leads to more shouting and fireworks when you don't quite have the power to get something done. Wow. Well, no rest for the weary, Josh. So thank you for doing all the work that you're doing there. It's just been, what a year. It feels like it's never, ever ending. And on top of that, there will be more fallout from January 6th, and there'll be more, you know, coming from the DOJ. Um, but all that to say, uh, it's a busy, busy time, and it keeps you very, very busy, I know. So thank you for all of that. Um, we're getting to the end of our 30 minutes, and I know that you have some other stories to be writing before the end of today. So I'm curious, before I let you go, um, is there someone that you can recommend for me to, to visit with uh, in, uh, for a future episode of the podcast? Um, I think uh, I'm going to nominate maybe a former colleague of mine mm -hmm. who is, um, his name is John Bresnahan. And oh, he, he's been um, a guest. He's Can been you a believe guest. it? Oh, yes, no, he I have has. to come up with another one. Yes, How did has. you come up with him already? He, That's impressive. Because I hit him up uh, okay. right after Punchbowl launched. I got oh, him. Oh, okay. Yeah. And can you believe it? John Bresnahan. I mean, I was so grateful to have him as a guest. Yeah. So he was um, our like congressional bureau chief for Politico for many years before going out to launch um, launch uh, Punchbowl. Uh, punch bowl. So yeah. he's really... I think many reporters consider him to be the dean of the totally congressional agree. reporting corps at this point. And, and it's kind of an era where um, that kind of longevity in any job in reporting or maybe in any job doing anything is less and less common. So, um, you know, those of us that have uh, 
uh, I, I haven't been on the scene quite as many years as he has, but um, you got to have some respect for the people that stick it out for the long haul. He's the best. Absolutely agree. Well, I'll come back to you then for a nomination. I'm, gonna, right. I'm just going to tell him that you were one. nominated for another, and I'll hit maybe, you up maybe, again. Maybe you can have him back on. <laughs> so much to talk about, right? Well, Josh, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm so grateful for it, and I'm so glad to have been able to catch you in between stories. Sure, Lisa. Lisa, happy to do it. Nice to chat with you. You too. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.